In memoriam stranger, who through the city of the dead with thoughtful soul and feeling heart may tread. Pause here for a moment. Those who sleep below with careless ear never heard a tale of woe. Four sisters, fair and young, together rest in saddest slumber on earth's kindly breast. Torn out of life in one disastrous hour, the rose unfolded and the budding flower, life did not part them. Death might not divide. They lived, they loved, they perished side by side. Over doom like theater, let gentle pity shed the softest tears that mourn the early fled. For whom lost children of another land, this marble raised by weeping friendship's hand. To us, to future time remains to tell how even in death they loved each other well. So read the inscription of a memorial at Mount Moriah Cemetery in remembrance of Abina, Cecilia, Hannah, and Ruth Gale. Four sisters, four ballerinas from London who traveled the world before they met their untimely death in the city of brotherly love. The Gale sisters were scheduled to perform Shakespeare's The Tempest over 150 years ago on September 14, 1861, at the Continental Theater on Walnut Street. The theater no longer stands, but in the 1800s, William Wheatley, an actor and stage manager, thought he could bring the dwindling theater back to life. He invested time, money, and elbow grease into that theater, getting it ready for the performance featuring the Gale sisters. But before they even took the stage, a horrible fire broke out in the dressing room. All four sisters lost their lives, as did other ballerinas in the company. A number of funerals were held at William Wheatley's house, including Hannah and Obina Gale. The day was gray and rainy, as if the heavens wept for the loss of these beautiful young souls. In an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer from September 17, 1861, an unnamed writer described the weather like something out of a Dickens novel, calling it no ordinary rain, in strong, steady drops but a misty, drizzling vapor, descending upon the sea, penetrating every nook and corner not locked in by walls or shutters. Ninth Street was crowded with carriages, people who wanted to pay their respects, there were friends, family, even those who didn't know the Gale sisters but heard of the horrible fire at the Continental Theater that took the life of so many. The girl's mother was called away from their funeral that day because one of her other two daughters, who was in Pennsylvania Hospital, was believed to be passing her final hours. A parade of 60 carriages followed the hearse to Mount Moriah Cemetery, where Hannah and Abina Gale were interred together in a single grave. They were just 18 and 20 years old. Their younger sister, Ruth, 14, was buried alongside her sisters in Mount Moriah a few days later. William Wheatley started a committee to offset the cost of funeral and burial expenses for the Gale sisters, as well as the other young women killed in the fire at Colonial Theater. In a matter of days, he raised over $400. It was a Victorian GoFundMe, supported by prominent members of Philadelphia Society and folks who had much less to give but still gave what they could, like the theater community in the city of brotherly love. Cecilia Gale, who was the youngest of the Dancing Gale sisters, was finally laid to rest on September 29th, two weeks after the fire. These were four of the nine people killed in that fire on September 14, 1861, and these four spend eternity together at Mount Moriah Cemetery, along the edge of Philadelphia and Delaware counties.
Today, no one really owns Mount Moriah Cemetery. In fact, if it wasn't for a group of volunteers who make up an organization called the Friends of Mount Moriah, the cemetery would have continued along the tracks of abandonment, which is what happened before it closed in 2011. It's considered the largest cemetery in the United States ever to be abandoned. And that's something many of us may not even consider. Someone has to maintain cemeteries, the grounds, the tombstones, internments. But when a cemetery stops accepting burials, as Mount Moriah did, it's for a reason. There were no funds and no staff. Mount Moriah Cemetery closed in April 2011, but for decades before, it might as well have been closed because it was impossible to maintain. What started as 54 acres of farmland outside Philadelphia grew to 200 acres, and at one point the cemetery may have been as large as 380 acres. All of that was just too much to manage for the Mount Moriah Cemetery Association. In 2012, the cemetery got a much-needed shot in the arm when a nonprofit organization was formed, the Mount Moriah Cemetery Preservation Corporation. Decades before this, a group of concerned citizens called the Friends of Mount Moriah tried to make a difference in this cemetery. But it wasn't until after the cemetery closed that the Friends of Mount Moriah were really given the opportunity to save this historic space, creating an opportunity for people to visit their loved ones. Join me as we take a trip back to 1855, when Mount Moriah was incorporated. We'll talk about some famous burials and the revitalization efforts through the Friends of Mount Moriah. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this twisted journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast, True Crime, Haunted History, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted Philly. For me, one of the most recognizable features of Mount Moriah Cemetery is an old cemetery gatehouse built in 1855 by Victorian architect Stephen Decatur Buttons. Buttons' works graced the streets of Philadelphia and even Cape May. Some of his more familiar or well-known designs are the Arch Street Presbyterian Church on 18th and Arch Streets in Philly and the Stockton Court houses in Cape May. You might know the ones if you visited Stockton Court. They're almost identical to one another except one of them might have a larger porch or two porches. One might have a bit more gingerbread, but all of the front porches are open to one another, so every property catches the sea breezes. The old cemetery gatehouse at Mount Moriah is gothic. Button's designs ranged between simple, almost austere, to ornate and very much influenced by the Renaissance. The gatehouse was an incredibly imposing structure made from brownstone. There's an enormous center arch with two smaller arches on either side and buildings on either end. It's beautiful and terrifying. You can find photographs of the gatehouse online, and it looks like the perfect setting for a horror movie. Today, the 165-year-old gatehouse is surrounded by chain-link fencing for visitors' safety as well as protection of the structure. Sections of this once amazing gatehouse are held up by scaffolding. Parts of the gatehouse have crumbled to the ground from a fire that happened in the 1970s. 
The condition of this old cemetery gatehouse is really indicative of what happened to Mount Moriah Cemetery. Even though it still had an owner through the end of the 20th century, it was basically abandoned. When Mount Moriah Cemetery opened in 1855, it was a little over 50 acres along Cobbs Creek at the southwest end in Philadelphia. It was incorporated at that location because it was such a beautiful rural stretch of land outside the city. It was pastoral and calm, very similar in concept to Laurel Hill Cemetery, which opened about 20 years earlier. As altruistic as the motivations were of the men who founded Laurel Hill Cemetery, that wasn't necessarily the case with every rural cemetery incorporated soon thereafter. There was money to be made in operating cemeteries, especially ones that were called park cemeteries, those locations outside a major city, which at the time were far away from the industry and overpopulation of Philadelphia. Mount Moriah quickly grew to more than 200 acres. It was the largest cemetery in Pennsylvania, one of the largest in the country, and its sheer size made it appealing to area churches and organizations who bought large plots for their members. But its size was also its downfall. The cemetery became just too large to manage effectively, as people left the Mount Moriah Cemetery Association either because they no longer wanted to be a part of the organization, or they passed away, leaving vacancies that weren't always filled, there weren't enough people to maintain the cemetery. Not everyone who called Mount Moriah their final resting place actually stayed there. One of the most famous burials at Mount Moriah Cemetery was Elizabeth Ross Claypool, also known as Betsy Ross, although she wasn't interred there immediately after her death. Her remains were first interred with her third and final husband, John Claypool, at the Free Quaker Burial Ground in Philadelphia. Twenty years after her death, the Mount Moriah Cemetery Association purchased her remains. Yes, purchased as in bought. According to historian J.P. Webster in his book Vanishing Philadelphia, Ruins of the Quaker City, purchasing the remains of deceased persons was like a marketing tactic. Cemeteries could garner publicity and interest from the public if they could boast of a famous American within their midst. So in 1857, the Mount Moriah Cemetery Association purchased Betsy Ross's remains, as well as those of her husband John and her sisters. They were disinterred from the Free Quaker burial ground and moved to Mount Moriah Cemetery, where the Daughters of the American Revolution erected a flagpole in Betsy's honor at her gravesite. Betsy and her family rested peacefully at Mount Moriah for almost 120 years, until 1975 when her remains were again disinterred. They were relocated to what is believed to be the Betsy Ross House in Old City, Philadelphia. Now, there are more than a few folks who aren't entirely convinced Betsy actually lived at the house near 2nd and Art Streets in Philly. Equally, there are some people who aren't convinced the remains of Betsy Ross were removed from Mount Moriah Cemetery. By 1975, the gravesite for Betsy Ross and her family was overgrown. Her headstone was stolen years before, and like the rest of Mount Moriah, the site where the Daughters of the Revolution erected a flagpole in her honor was no longer maintained as a place of historic significance. Bones were removed from the site where Betsy Ross, her husband John Claypool, and her sisters were believed to be buried. But it's possible because of the conditions there, not all of Betsy's bones were removed or those of her family. 
How did Mount Moriah become a wild, overgrown, and oversized dumping ground? It didn't happen overnight. It was a long, slow process that started in the late 1800s after the Civil War with the cemetery boom. Mount Moriah had its own train station, making it easily accessible from both Philadelphia and the main line. By the end of the Civil War, the cemetery grew to 200 acres. It crossed Cobbs Creek along the edge of southwest Philadelphia and extended into Delaware County into the town of Yadin. Besides large plots for spiritual and civic organizations, there were two military plots established in Mount Moriah, a naval plot and the Philadelphia Soldiers plot. Hearing all this, that they had their own train station and so many organizations that bought up so much of the land in the cemetery for their members when they passed on, you might wonder, well, what happened? It sounds like at least through the turn of the 20th century, Mount Moriah was a thriving cemetery. It was set in a peaceful, bucolic setting with views of the city. Even during the Depression years, Mount Moriah received support from the Works Progress Administration. They put in a new drainage system. Veterans from both world wars were buried at Mount Moriah Cemetery. From what I've read in J.P. Webster's book, as well as essays and articles in so many Philadelphia publications, it seems like the greatest period of decline was after the Second World War. I think the root of the decline was the size of the cemetery, a lack of leadership, a lack or mismanagement of funding. Mount Moriah got really big, really fast. It jumped in size from 54 acres to over 200, and at one point it was believed to cover over 380 acres. What set in between the 1970s and the next turn of the century was severe neglect and abuse. Mount Moriah took on the appearance of an unmaintained nature center. Tombstones were covered in brush and vines. Some sank below ground. Even areas of higher elevation, like the two circles high up on the hills in Mount Moriah, were covered with growth. Above-ground mausoleums weren't immune from the environmental takeover. In many ways, it was hard to determine at first glance that this was even a cemetery. Mount Moriah Cemetery also became a home to crime. In 1988, a body was discovered by Yadin police on the Delaware County side of Mount Moriah Cemetery. It was a man who'd been beaten and strangled. Whoever dumped his body probably thought he wouldn't be found for a while, considering the state of the cemetery, besides the overgrowth of trees and weeds covering almost everything in sight. The paths and roads were affected by the elements. It made it really tough for the police to patrol Mount Moriah. In 2002, a body was found in the trunk of a burning car. Later that year, another man was found murdered and left in the cemetery. He died as a result of gunshot wounds, whether he was shot and dumped in the cemetery or killed within the grounds of Mount Moriah wasn't entirely clear. In 2003, the former office manager, Deborah Jerome from Mount Moriah Cemetery, was interviewed for a piece in the Philadelphia Inquirer about abandoned cemeteries. At that time, there were just 11 groundskeepers supporting Mount Moriah. Deborah told Inquirer reporter Edward Collimore there was an ongoing battle with vandalism and dumping from the surrounding neighborhoods. She said both she and the police spoke to people they found in the cemetery on a frequent basis, including kids who seemed to get a kick out of pushing over headstones. As desecrating as that sounds, that was the least of the problems at Mount Moriah. People who visited the cemetery to pay respects to their loved ones never knew what they would find, or if they'd even be able to find a marker. 
It could have been destroyed by the elements or destroyed by vandalism. They could stumble across people using the cemetery to deal drugs or use drugs, sex workers. All of this happened for years while the cemetery was maintained by Mount Moriah Cemetery Association. They continued receiving burials, which is shocking to me, when they couldn't properly maintain or care for the thousands of remains already buried therein. Without notice or warning, Mount Moriah closed in April 2011, and people continued using the cemetery as their own personal trash dump. Not just nearby residents, but contractors. The vast amount of construction waste dumped at Mount Moriah Cemetery over the last 20 years is insane. There are so many articles and photographs in Philadelphia newspapers and from the Friends of Mount Moriah about contractors who used the cemetery as a construction dumping site. Concrete, sheetrock, drywall, anything that could be considered construction waste was dumped there. Looking at these images was hard. For me, cemeteries are sacred places. Regardless of your faith, I'd like to believe we can all see the respect and reverence cemeteries and graveyards deserve. I've mentioned before how drawn I am to Laurel Hill. I find so much comfort and peace in sitting on a step overlooking the Schuylkill River near a row of mausoleums. So seeing and reading about the way some people in the areas surrounding Mount Moriah Cemetery disgraced the grounds there was really upsetting. But in 2011, a group of very determined people were committed to restoring Mount Moriah Cemetery to a place where people could visit their loved ones in safety and peace. That's the Friends of Mount Moriah, and they have made an incredible difference. To share that story with you, I'm joined by Ken Smith, the president of the Friends of Mount Moriah, a volunteer organization working with the community and city officials in both Yadin and Philadelphia to maintain over 140 acres of Mount Moriah Cemetery. Please join me in welcoming Ken to Twisted Philly. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with me today. I have to say, I feel like I got to know just a little bit about you. I watched the short documentary film that was produced about Mount Moriah, so I got to see you in the film, and that was a really nice treat. It's funny. You kind of go out there just kind of expecting to be the someone who's like on a mower or a weed whacker or kind of like leading people around and whatnot, and next thing you know, your people are asking for an interview basically trying to figure out exactly why we are out there doing what we do just trying to kind of a lot of people will approach us and they just kind of like you know scratch their heads why are you doing what you're doing a lot of us has have a, a variety of reasons for being out there but it's an amazing place it's an amazing experience one of the highlights so far in my life for folks who are unfamiliar with the Friends of Mount Moriah, would you tell me a little bit about the organization and the work that you do? Sure. So the Friends of Mount Moriah Cemetery uh, was actually established back in the 90s when the cemetery was still in operation. Although uh, with a typical Friends group, uh, they will try to raise money for certain repairs that need to be done around the cemetery, certain events they want to bring out, raise awareness of the cemetery and what it might need. At the time, in the 90s, 
and the cemetery really wasn't open to having an outside group like this come in and really do much of anything. Only when the cemetery closed in 2011 did the Friends of Mount Moriah really get a chance to do what we're doing now, and that's basically restore and reclaim and preserve uh, the grounds of the cemetery. So in 2011, again, the cemetery opened in 1855, closed in the spring of 2011 without any notice. That's when it was probably the best thing that they could have ever done because it had basically been driven into the ground from a standpoint of the infrastructure. Buildings are, are in need of serious repair. The grounds were being used as a dump. There was no security on the grounds, and it got so bad to where families just couldn't visit their loved ones. And even if they wanted to visit their loved ones, it had become so overgrown that it was just something that just couldn't be done. And people were also concerned for their safety. I'm not surprised to hear that. Some of the research that I did, I found that there were murders, either if they didn't take place in the cemetery, the victim was left in the cemetery, something back in 88, in the early 2000s. I saw an article in 2006 where someone who, exactly what you're describing, wanted to try to visit the site where their loved one was buried, and they actually found makeshift kennels that had been erected. I believe the area that you're talking about is an area where uh, like an animal rights group had come in and set up temporary shelters for the animals. Uh, And this was basically for strays. So while they had a good purpose for, for wanting to do this, it was really kind of attracting a lot of the animals that had just been, you know, the homeless animals that are just running all over the place. So this group came out, they were feeding the dogs, taking care of them from a medical standpoint. And these were trained vets, but the challenge that was created was that obviously when you're putting out more and more food for wild animals, more are going to be attracted. So individuals looking to do something really good kind of created a little bit of a problem that took us quite a while to overcome. And we've since removed the kennels. Uh, So wild dogs really aren't a problem anymore. You may get a stray running through, but that's, uh, that's about it. But it was a uh, not what you would kind of envision as a place where you where you want your loved ones um, to have their final resting place at the time in the 80s, 90s, and when the cemetery closed. How many folks are there in the Friends of Mount Moriah? In the organization, I would say regular volunteers that are out on the grounds who are involved in the organization, and it's not just individuals who are again, riding a mower and and dragging around a weed whacker or or cutting down trees and whatnot. Uh, But we have an entire organization that focuses on the history of the cemetery, documenting that. We have a green committee who is focused on preservation and a reintroduction of native species of plants and trees back into the area, basically because it had become overrun with uh, invasives, poison ivy and Atlantis trees and whatnot. All in all, uh, I would say that there's probably 30 to 40 of us who are kind of like regular committed to the Friends of Mount Moriah. Uh, when I say committed, I'll, I'll say those are individuals that probably come out or, or do uh, a certain amount of work on a weekly basis. And then we also have individuals that come out whenever they can fit it into their schedule. And that could be you know, once a month, it could be, you know, once a year. Uh, But then we also have 
individuals across the country obviously can't make it to the grounds of the cemetery and they have loved ones who are buried there and that's where we, we receive our donations. These are individuals through Facebook who see what we're doing, how frequently we're out there, and we don't just post the good, we post the bad. Yeah. So whenever we have somebody who dumps um, construction debris within the within the cemetery, we take a picture of it. This is what we're facing today. You'll see other cemeteries will post or, or have the news crews out when headstones are being knocked over. Happens to us as well. We'll post it on Facebook. We, we may not get on the news, but we you know post it to the page, let everybody know what we're up against, and that also helps drive donations to us. When you talk about dumping, I read a story in Philadelphia Magazine from a few years ago, and Paulette Roan yes. was interviewed. She talked about a day when two gentlemen in a truck mm -hmm. filled with garbage threatened to run her over. And she sounded like a very formidable woman. I, I would like to offer my condolences. Yes, I understand yes. she passed away this spring, but I know that she was a, an integral part of the Friends of Mount Moriah. Her husband had been buried there. That story was just so amazing to me, trying to picture this woman standing in front of a truck and telling them, not today, you're not going to exactly. dump this stuff on my exactly. watch. And that happened more than once. It's just the one time that it was kind of documented in the press. So the, the And I was there the day that this occurred. So she was out there with another volunteer. This truck comes through the main entrance, makes its way down a long, winding, narrow road towards us. And you can tell it was, a, it, was a, it was a truck that was full of landscaping debris. And they were just trying to find a place to quick do a short dump, basically just back up and dump it out and then, then keep going. So Paulette was at the end of this road, and there was nowhere this truck could go with the exception of just continuing to go forward. So Paulette stood in front of the truck and basically said, it's not going to happen. And Paulette was probably five foot two, um, but one of the strongest individuals from a, from a will standpoint that you'll ever run into. And lo and behold, she got into a verbal altercation with these gentlemen. And the way this, this story ends is that truck backed all the way up the road that it drove down. Nothing was jumped, was wow. dropped in the cemetery. So it, it unfortunately still happens. It's such a large place. It's, it's about 140 acres at this point. And defending that on a regular basis is a regular challenge. We still have people that come in and dump. We pick it up as soon as it happens. Um, we had the city puts on a, they call it like a tire roundup in the spring and they offer 50 cents a tire and it's a way to help remove all the tires that are dumped through the city. The first year that we participated in this, we pulled well over a thousand tires out of Mount Moriah. Since the beginning, we've pulled well more than, than 2000 tires out of the grounds. And it was basically just being used, um, as a dump. Everything from construction debris to couches to anything and everything that you can imagine that people just want to get rid of and not have to pay the dump fee. It would come through the front gate. Why do you think people looked at this place? Because I certainly, and I know so many of my listeners, and obviously you and the Friends of Mount Moriah, we look at cemeteries as a sacred place, a place with reverence, whether we have a, a loved one there or not. What do you think it is that makes people think that this type of behavior is acceptable? I can't even 
begin to imagine how anybody can process that thought to where it comes across like this is something okay to do. It's horrible. It's one of the most uh, disrespectful things that anybody can do. I can see maybe dumping out on, and I can't even rationalize it, but it's, you know, if you're going to dump somewhere in an empty lot and it's not fine, but it's better than dumping it, in, you know, on the final resting place of, of many individuals. And nobody wants to pay the, the dump fee. That's really what it kind of comes down to. There are places that have been opened up through the city that take a material that was, and to this day is still deposited on the ground. And you wonder why. It's hard to say if it's out of habit, it's out of convenience. We've had people who have been hired to do uh, small construction jobs. Um, we've had large construction jobs, the refuse dumped out on the grounds. We've had probably well north of 100,000 pounds of concrete just dropped next to, next to our mausoleums. And that had to be done by somebody who was doing massive road repair somewhere. Unfortunately, what we've had to do is kind of restrict access to cars through the week in an effort to prevent this from occurring. It's a shame, but unfortunately, it's, it's something that we have to do to go ahead and preserve the grounds. So you mentioned the grounds are about 140 acres today. That's still an enormous amount of property. How much of that have you and the friends been able to restore through the the lawn work that you do and all of the mowing and and restoring Mm -hmm. headstones? Yeah, right now we control and maintain a little bit more than 50% of the cemetery. It's quite a challenge. Um, We have a a dedicated group of volunteers that come out in the mornings, afternoons, whatever they can fit it in, and they'll just jump on a mower and they just go. And it's a lot more challenging cutting 70 acres of a cemetery as opposed to uh, a 70-acre field because you're going in and out of all the headstones, all the weed whacking that's involved. It's an incredible challenge. And these guys, ask, they, they don't ask for anything. They don't ask for, for recognition. They don't ask for, they just, they just want to come in and do what needs to be done, what should be done. I mean, a lot of times people, they really can't grasp the size of what we're dealing with. And the way I typically will start off a discussion with people to kind of put it into scale is that Citizens Bank Park fits on 20 acres. So we can easily fit seven of those on the grounds of the cemetery. My brain just hurt when you said that. Yeah. You know, even having visited the cemetery and I was only in one section, I walked that one loop the day of the craft fair. That was such a, a small portion of the grounds, but still still big. Yeah. Hearing you say that you could fit seven Citizens Bank parks and, you know, for folks that are listening from outside of Philadelphia, that's our ballpark where the Philadelphia Phillies play. So in your community, think about Shea Stadium, think about the Green Monster, Fenway Park up in Boston. You know, imagine something that size or a little bigger and now multiply it by seven. Exactly. And we, what we had to do first was effectively excavate all the trash and construction debris and everything that was dumped on the ground over the last three or four decades. Then we could get to work. So, yeah, it's been a, uh, it's been a heck of a ride. I mean, we look back at how long that we've been doing it, seven, eight years, and we've gotten we've cleared about half of it. So we've, we still have a lot of work to go. So any and all support is greatly appreciated. 
So how does the Friends organization work with the the receivership? I understand there's a receivership that's been established with members from both the Yaden and Philadelphia local civic community. How do you partner with them and, and who sort of makes the decisions about what happens with the cemetery or key priorities sure, or how sure, money is so. going to be spent? There's three organizations that are really kind of involved here. You have the Funk organization, which is the Mount Moriah Cemetery Association of Philadelphia. That's the original organization that owned it, operated it up all the way through 2011, and they still have ownership of the cemetery. Then you have the Mount Moriah uh, Preservation Corp. And this is that entity that you spoke of to where you have representatives from the city of Philadelphia, the borough of Yaden, and then you have some independent parties on there as well. And then you have the Friends of Mount Moriah Cemetery. So the way it works is the Mount Moriah Cemetery Association of Philadelphia is now being overseen by the Philadelphia Orphans Court. Philadelphia Orphans Court has transferred the power uh, and responsibility of maintaining the grounds over to the Mount Moriah Preservation Corp. So they kind of keep an eye on everything that we're doing. So the Friends of Mount Moriah were allowed to maintain the grounds. What we're not allowed to do on our own are interments, disinterments, or the placement of headstones. So the way that all works is whenever anybody want to do one of those three, they have to go back to Philadelphia Orphans Court because at the end of the day, Philadelphia Orphans Court is supervising all of this. So you have the Mount Moriah Preservation Corp uh, reporting into Philadelphia Orphans Court on the progress that we're making through the year. As far okay. as how funds are spent, uh, that's basically left up to the friends of, of Mount Moriah and our board and our committees. It's a little bit different when you think about a friends group. A friends group is, is one, uh, and I briefly spoke about this this earlier, a friends group is an organization that basically raises money for if a gate needs to be fixed, if a small project needs to be done. This friends group will, will step in coordinating with the owner of the cemetery and saying, we'd like to do this. That's fine. Go ahead. They raise the money through some fundraisers, um, and at the end of the day, that project is complete. Everybody kind of goes home. Um, our friends organization does much more than that. We're basically running the cemetery at this point with, with the exception of those three things that we're, we're not allowed to do without, without approval through the Philadelphia orphans court. Well, when we walked through the front gate, everything was in complete disarray. The records were picked up by the city of Philadelphia, the, office that we're in the process of restoring at this point was basically shuttered. Grass was waist high and the worst areas completely reforested. What wound up happening was the city was getting a lot of phone calls, obviously from families saying, you know, what's going on? I can't find my loved ones. Have you seen what's going on at, at Mount Moriah? We stepped in. So the city now effectively has our back and supports us in any way that they can through we have the, the local Philadelphia police, the 12th district comes through on, on regular, uh, regular events. We go up and, and we meet with the preservation corp, other individuals within the city to see what support that we can garner from them. Now, obviously the city has a lot more challenges on its plate 
and a very defined budget. So there's, they can't simply write us this massive check um, to go ahead and make things all right. It's unbelievable the amount of work that you guys do. I visited Mount Moriah over the summer and couldn't believe the way it looked. It, it was beautiful. I mean, the areas that had been maintained just, it, it looked like an entirely different space. It's so huge. And it sounds like it's just a constant effort between the preservation work, all of the ecological work, the reforestation of indigenous plants, trying to prevent illegal dumping. It just sounds like it's constant. Oh, it, is. it is. From from the, from the time the gates are opened in the morning until they're closed at night, I mean, there's always challenges that we're facing out there. We're coming kind of to the end of the growing season. But the, these are our volunteers. It's basically switching equipment. You would think that they would be happy to see the mowers getting you know, parked away for, for the winter. But these guys just go out and they just grab chainsaws. It's time to start pulling out some of the trees that just shouldn't be there. And that's how we've managed to go ahead and, and take back as many sections that we have. I mean, it's every once in a while, what I'll do is I'll go on our, our Facebook page or our website, and every once in a while, we'll, we'll post photos of the before and after shots. And sometimes you really need to do that in order to go ahead and, and kind of keep going, because there are moments during the summer while you're sitting on a mower or out there just just working your butt off the entire day and you know people just get completely exhausted and you kind of wonder why am i here and that's when you go back and you take a look at the photos of what things look like before and what they look like now and the families that are visiting now and ones that couldn't in the past and it's amazing the draw that a cemetery of any kind, ours being 100 and 165 years old, has with some individuals. I met an individual out on the ground today that drove from Texas. Wasn't really comfortable with driving, but it was time for them to come back and visit their family's plot. So they reach out to us through our, our Facebook page or our website and say, you know, I'm coming into town. Um, I could really use some help in, in locating my my loved ones. Can you lend us a hand? And we always go out of our way to go ahead and, and help them any way that we possibly can. They drove from Texas. We've had people fly in from Hawaii trying to document their their loved ones as far as being of, of true Hawaiian descent so that they could receive some type of benefit. We had a, a husband and wife drove from Mississippi he, the, the husband, never met his mother, and he was seriously ill, and he wanted to come and visit her final resting place before he wasn't able to. Drove from Mississippi. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and this was a couple that were well into their retirement. You, you go out on the grounds, and you start working, and people say, you know, ask you, you know, how, why? Why do you do it? That's why. If we don't do it, who would do it? Is there another organization that's going to, you know, tap you on the shoulder and say, you know, we got this. That moment when you're able to go out on the ground and you're able to connect with a family and truly help them out, I guarantee you'll be back wanting to do the same thing again and again and again. And our organization, while we're small, taking care of such a large piece of ground, kind of the way that we look, look at things is if we were to go ahead and stop, Who's going to do what we do? 
who's going to take over for us. So we keep going until someone taps us on the shoulder and says, you know, we got this. And to this moment, I'll be out there tomorrow morning at 5.36 in the morning. Second shift rolls in right around 8, 8.30 in the morning, and we just keep going. That's absolutely amazing. Ken, if there are folks that want to help, they want to get involved, whether they can volunteer once a week or once a year, mm-hmm. what's the best way for them to reach out and get set up with the right people to, to start helping? Well, probably the best thing to do would be to first visit our Facebook page, Friends of Mount Moriah Cemetery. Uh, we've got about 7,000, maybe even 8,000 friends at this point. You can see what we're doing on a regular basis. And our volunteers, while in the past, may have simply been focused on landscaping and, and you know, clearing heavy material off, off of the cemetery. We can use people who are, whose skills are focused on marketing, whose skills are in technology, anything and everything, quite honestly, we, we could use help with. We have to kind of find our way beyond simply being a defunct cemetery. That's what we're in the process of doing now. So again, um, our, our website, uh, Friends of Mount Moriah Cemetery, simply Google us. Our Facebook page, we throw stuff up there almost every day showing what we're doing, pulling headstones out of the ground, resetting monuments, meeting families, doing everything that simply needs to be done so that the grounds can be a place where families can go back, come back to and visit their, final, their loved one's final resting place. And I also wanted to ask you about that. I'd mentioned in my Facebook page that I was going to be talking to a member of the board, and one of my listeners commented that her grandparents and other distant family members are buried there, and they just don't know the first thing about how to find where they are. They, you know, they think they have a plot, but they don't know if they can find headstones. In that situation, who should they contact? Should they go through the Facebook page or the website? Exactly. That's that's the best way to do it. We have so many genealogists on our website who are familiar with the cemetery. A lot of times you'll have 20 or 30 people watching it at any given time. And someone will say, you know, how do I find my loved one? It's like post a name and a date. And quite honestly, on the Facebook page, these genealogists and just regular people pulling research will throw more up on the page than the individual probably ever knew about their loved ones. They pull photos, they pull census. It's a community that's just trying to help. And that's the best place to start would be our Facebook page. Or they can simply, if they don't want to go ahead and post something on the page for for the public to see, they can go through our, our website. And there's a place to send us an email there. And we'll go ahead and do the research that we can and get back to them, let them know where their loved ones are interred. We have maps on the website as well. And if they need help and we're out on the ground, we're happy to go ahead and lend a hand. That's terrific. I have to ask you about the gatehouse. I don't know if I'm calling it the right name. The structure that was built by Stephen Decatur Buttons back in 1855 when Mount Moriah Cemetery opened. Yes. I think it's probably one of the most iconic recognizable images. There's photos of it online dating back to pen and ink drawings when it was first erected. And it's definitely seen better days over the years. Mm-hmm. Is that something that the cemetery is is hoping to restore? 
it may or may not be a priority with everything else that you're caring for there? Well, right now, as it stands, our budget is is incredibly lean. We operate on a budget of anywhere between fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year, and while that may seem like a, a decent chunk of money, a lot of it's going to basically keeping the equipment moving. This last year, we did start with additional capital improvements of the roads as well as the office building, which is right at the main entrance. That is presently being fixed. It's being restored. The roof was completely shot on it, so there was a lot of water damage through it. Our goal right now is to go ahead and get the what we call the office, and that's the brick building off of King Sessing operational. And what we deem as operational is basically a place for, for uh, the volunteers to go and, and get out of the elements occasionally and uh, have a powder room. That would be a luxury to us at this point. As far as the, the original gatehouse, we have had individuals from UPenn come out and study the structure. As far as being able to go ahead and restore it, that is going to be a very expensive ticket. The building was, it was built in 1855. From our understanding, it was occupied all the way up through the 70s, at which point it sustained a, uh, a fire. You can still see some of that as you're looking at the building, the, the, uh, the left side. So the roof was compromised on both sides of the building. So one side you would have the caretaker and his family resided, and the other side was basically the office. I think at the end, that was simply being used as a place for people to go ahead and live. I think it was being rented out. Fire occurred. Roof was gone. I don't think they ever went back and fixed it, kept the insurance money. We can only assume that over the next 20 years, 20, 30 years, if the roof goes, everything else is just going to cascade into the basement. And that's basically what we have at this point. Our goal right now is to simply hold up the facade. So as you drive by the cemetery, you'll see like this wooden structure up and on the front and the uh, and the rear of the building. And that's basically just to go ahead and hold it up, to go ahead and buy us time. We'd like to turn it into something, whether it be uh, simply being able to go ahead and, and shore up the facade, kind of like this is the outline of the original building. There have been other discussions as far as what can be done with the building, but it is a, a it's a very expensive ticket to go ahead and get that to anything resembling what it once was. We're going after kind of what we can at this point, and that's getting the uh, the office up and running. But yeah, we'd, we'd love to be able to do something with the original gatehouse. For folks who aren't local and can't help volunteering at the cemetery, but if, if they wanted to make a contribution or make a donation, how would they go about doing that? You can go to our website, go to Friends of Mount Moriah Cemetery, and there's a place to go ahead and, and you can do it through credit card. We take checks. If you want to go ahead and, and donate directly to the restoration of the office building, we have that option. If anybody has any questions uh, as to how they can help, and it's not always a monetary donation that helps us. A lot of the times it's simply raising awareness of what we're dealing with and what beautiful resources that we have. Out in Southwest Philly, there's 140 acres. There's so much that can be done with these grounds. What we're trying to do right now is to make it a place where people can come out, visit, whether it be visit their loved ones, take a walk around or whatnot. But kind of getting back to your question, 
the biggest challenge that we face is is awareness, and that's not always a need of of writing a check or, or pulling out a credit card. A lot of the times, it's simply a matter of connecting us with individuals who have those resources that we need to get the cemetery to the next level. Well, that's my hope with doing this. I've had so many people over the years ask me, are you ever going to do an episode about Mount Moriah? I'm sure there's ghost stories there and all kinds of creepy stuff. (laughs) There's a, a lot more to it than the fact it's just an abandoned cemetery. Right, right. I didn't want to just talk about, here's this creepy old abandoned cemetery, because that's not what it is. Yes, it was abandoned at one point, but there, there's so much more happening there. I think if people have the opportunity to to understand and to to learn about the work that's being done on behalf of thousands of families across the country, to your point, you've been contacted by people from all over the country. There's this group of people from Pennsylvania who are just giving so much of their time and their love and their energy to try to bring this place back to life. And I think it's absolutely incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Kind of the way that that I equate what Mount Moriah is, if you've ever been in an old house and that old house feels like it almost has a life to it, it almost has like a soul to it when you walk in from all the energy that, you know, people have, you know, spent through the years in that home, kind of compare that to what we have out on the ground, 165-year-old cemetery with more than 180,000 individuals interred there, 23, 24 Medal of Honor recipients, so many stories, so much energy out there. It's truly an amazing place. What you said was absolutely beautiful. Is there anything you would like to share about the cemetery or the work that's been done or anybody you work with that maybe hasn't already come up in our discussion? I don't know. Uh, it's it's kind of like you go through this process of working for something like this. There's a lot of challenges that our organization comes up against. And we also have run into other cemeteries across the country that have fallen into disrepair and are, are in very similar circumstances that Mount Moriah is. And a lot of times people will be looking to elected officials, local governments, how can you let this happen? And you can sit around and have these these discussions, you know, continuing to get in touch with your congressman and whatnot. But at the end of the day, what's going to get it done is a dedicated group of volunteers that just say enough is enough. And they get out there. Paulette was the first one, along with another volunteer, out on 140 acres with a push mower. You got to start somewhere. That's what we did, and that's where we are. We've got a long ways to go, but you can't expect everybody to do everything. That's such a powerful message, I think, about everything, right? That, you know, sometimes things can seem so overwhelming and just so very big. Just got to start. You just got to start, right? Yeah, yeah. You got to start somewhere. Absolutely. I had read in in something, uh, another interview with Paulette, that she had said she was hoping that once she passed, she would be able to be buried with her husband. Is that something that was possible? Are there still internments happening at Mount Moriah? So that's a good story. Not necessarily a good story, but uh, it has a, has a beautiful ending to it. So Paulette passed in February, and her husband was buried in the cemetery in the 90s. And, I mean, if you worked with Paulette, she would never say, oh, can you do me a favor and go over and clear my husband's headstone? His plot was as important as everybody else's throughout the cemetery. He's buried on the main drive uh, of the cemetery on the Philadelphia side. 
So she passes in February, and it's kind of, well, what do we do? Where's she going to go? She wanted to go be buried with her husband. So we were able to go ahead and reach out to individuals at Fernwood Cemetery, who is a, another local cemetery located in Yadin. And we were able to arrange for her to be held there while her family went through the process of applying to Philadelphia Orphans Court for the permission to have her interred. The last thing that Paulette would ever want us to do would be to go ahead and cut corners for her. So everything was done. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. So everything was, was presented to Philadelphia Orphans Court. Um, we received the approval. Then it was a matter of us doing our first interment out on the grounds, and it was Paulette. And with that being said, we had to get right, and it, it went well. So we had the uh, the funeral. Uh, I want to say it was uh, late June, early July, and she is now resting with her husband. Thank you so much, Ken, for sharing that. After I asked the question, I wondered, should I even have brought that up? And so I really... No, it's fine. It's fine. It's a little easier to talk about now. I appreciate it. Listening to the passion that you have for this work, just, just on behalf of everybody, you know, the passion that you share on behalf of all the other folks that you work with. I think it's really important for people to hear that. Can't say enough about the, the group that we have out there. I mean, again, nobody asks for anything. It's just amazing. I mean, we have the regular diehard volunteers that come out, there's probably 10 of us. But then if you take a look at, again, like who's coming out on a weekly basis, it kind of gets much larger from, from that standpoint, but they just want to do what's right, what needs to be done. And I guess the way they look at it is if they had loved ones in a cemetery that they couldn't get to, they would hope that there would be a group similar to ours doing what we do. That's a really wonderful thought. <laughs> I'm getting choked up. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I'm an easy crier. It's something that's developed as I've gotten older. I just turned 50 this summer, and it's like, wait, wait I didn't used to be like this. What's going on? <laughs> just everything touches me a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Ken, thank you so much. I appreciate you giving me so much of your time this afternoon. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Take care, Deanna. I'm so grateful for the time Ken Smith spent with me today. He and the Friends of Mount Moriah work tirelessly to maintain that historic cemetery. There are a number of moments in my conversation with Ken that really stood out to me. They've reclaimed 70 acres of that cemetery. That's mowing and weed whacking between tombstones, writing grave markers, ripping out what I wouldn't even call weeds. Weeds are the six-inch-high grass and ivy that grow in my flower bed. Weeds at Mount Moriah can be as high as your shins or your knees or even taller. They're filled with thick vines, poison ivy. You don't really get a sense of how hard that work is until you look at the Friends of Mount Moriah Cemetery Facebook page and see the incredible before and after comparisons. Ken's words about why he does it, why all of the volunteers do this work, were so impactful. Someone has to do it. If not them, then who? You've got to start somewhere. That sentiment is so right on, not only about the work at Mount Moriah Cemetery, but about so many aspects in life. I very much appreciate those words. I feel like it's a reminder that each of us needs sometimes. So how can you help and where can you learn more? Go to their website at friendsofmountmoriahcemetery.org. 
Mariah is spelled M-O-R-I-A-H. There you can learn more about the history of the cemetery, the veterans buried there. You can check out interactive maps featuring the areas that have been restored and just how much work has been done over the last eight years. You can also make a donation to restoration efforts through the website. You heard Ken. Awareness makes a big difference for them. So there are lots of ways to offer support besides monetary support. Join their Facebook group. Follow their Facebook page. Share events that are held at the cemetery. If you're local, attend those events. There are many things you can do to help spread the word about the Friends of Mount Moriah that don't require a donation if it's not in your budget. If it is and it's something you want to do, you'll find information about making donations on their website as well. Some of you may be wondering about ghost stories from Mount Moriah Cemetery. I didn't even look for ghost stories. And there's a reason for that. I feel like the cemetery was at risk of becoming a ghost. The Friends of Mount Moriah prevented this cemetery from disappearing. They prevented it from becoming a specter of its former self. I think that's the best ghost story that never was that could have come out of this cemetery. I will tell you, last year, they started using some interesting signs, which boldly stated no dumping and warned not only would violators be prosecuted, they would also be haunted by the residents of the cemetery. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.